Shalom and welcome back to our ongoing Torah study series for Christians, the Gospel According to Moses in the book of Exodus. We're at lesson number 36. And in this lesson, we're going to focus in on Exodus 12, verses 14 through 28. Let's begin the reading. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, that evening you shall eat unleavened bread on the until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So, in verse 14, God commands that this day is to be a memorial for you. You can read this also and related to verse 17 and also in verse 26. If you have your Bibles open, you can see how that's connected. Yes, in verse 17, we're dealing with um, to remember that I brought the host of the, the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt, so therefore this is going to be a memorial. And then in verse 26, which we haven't got to yet, it says, when your children ask you, why do we do this? It's a memorial. Now Hebrew for memorial, the Hebrew word is zikron. The Strong's number is 2146. And it has a root word. So as we check out the root of the Hebrew word, we get the conceptual idea of what's going on. The root word for zikron is zikar. The Strong's number is 2142. And we get a picture. The picture is uh, the idea of something piercing something or something penetrating something. So, when they are doing the Feast of Unleavened Bread annually, forever, it's as if it's like a pin or something sharp to prick you or to penetrate you and all of a sudden to start you to say, uh-oh, we better remember. Remember how all of this started. Where did all of this begin? Now, Torah emphasizes remembering all over the place. Well, we just read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a zikron. The picture, zikar, is to prick oneself, to penetrate oneself, to do something to remember. The Feast of Rosh Hashanah, 
Now, Rosh Hashanah is not in the Bible. That's a name made up by the rabbis, probably after Jesus' day. The actual name of the feast is Yom Teruah. This is in Leviticus 23, 24. 23, verse 24. It's the feast of the loud blast. And the Zikron, the memorial, it is a memorial of blowing the shofar. Yeah. Blowing the shofar. This law about Yom Teruah, which we know as Rosh Hashanah, was given at Sinai. So if you're a Hebrew, you're coming out of Egypt. What do they understand? What shofar did they hear? Well, if you go to Exodus 19.19, just before God gives the Ten Commandments, your Bible might say there was a loud trumpet being blown on the mountain. It doesn't say trumpet in Hebrew. It's shofar. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments, and God says, this is my covenant. It's a new covenant. So indeed, Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, it's a festival. It's a time to meet God and remember the blowing of the shofar. Probably related to Sinai, especially if you're a Hebrew coming out of Egypt. Or here's another one. Why wear tassels? And in Hebrew, tzitziot. This is a verse that we're familiar with. This comes from Numbers 15, 37 through 40. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them they shall make for themselves tassels. The Hebrew word is tzitziot on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put on the tassel the tzitzit of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at or remember all the commandments of the Lord. There it is. Remember. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after, after from which you play the harlot. So that you may remember, again, remember, to do all my commandments and thus be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. When we remember the woman with the bleeding disease in Jesus' day on those narrow streets of Capernaum. And she touches what we say, the fringe of his garment. When you go to the Greek and back to the Hebrew, it's tzitzit. One of the four that was on the corners of the square outer garment that Jesus wore. And so Jesus is living up to Torah. <laughs> you might say that's a good example, the fact that Jesus never abolished the Torah. So with the tassels, they're supposed to remember, to remember to live how God wants them to live so that they could be a distinct people, a set-apart people, a special people. The word is holy, or in Hebrew, kadosh. Now in Christianity, we've got nothing like this, wearing tassels. And Jewish men, religious Jewish men today, they wear them still. It's such a cool ritual. Now, God also remembers. Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah, Zachar. Genesis 19, verse 29, God remembered Abraham. Genesis 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel. <laughs> You say, what? 
did God forget? And remember, you guys, we're dealing with English, and we've got to go back to the Hebrew. I mean, if you just go into the English, you're saying, okay, the flood happens, uh, God got busy, uh, he's destroying the world, and Noah slipped his mind, and God forgot about what this was all about. No. Now, the Hebrew word zakor, and that is the root of zikron, remembrance or memorial, in the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, you're not going to find this in a concordance. A concordance is not going to help you understand the conceptual idea behind a Hebrew word. So zakor gives the idea of keeping something, preserving something, holding on to something. You just say, wait a minute, that, that kind of makes sense. It's keeping something in my mind. It's preserving something in my mind. It's holding on to something in my mind. This implies that Noah is, in, is, is being preserved in God's mind. We get the idea of a, a continual presence of the remembrance of Noah in God's mind, it's always there. God is keeping Noah in his mind continually. He never forgets. And us too. Remember Psalm 121. The Lord God is our keeper. He keeps us. Not only is he keeping us, protecting us, surrounding us, but he's keeping us on his mind. He's holding on to us. He's remembering us 24-7. This concept of remembering is, is amazing. Tassels, tzitzit, daily, daily remembering. The Shabbat, weekly remembering. God, actually, when you study the Sabbath, we will get there. We'll get to those laws. There are two specific things that they're supposed to remember. Remember that God is the creator of all things. Number number one. And number two, they're supposed to remember when they were slaves in Egypt and then God brought them out of Egypt. They do this weekly. Monthly, they have a new moon festival. We'll get into that. It's also related to God saying in Exodus 12, this will be a new month for you. This is the new year for you, God's new year. And this will be the first day of the month. So the first day of a month has significance. And then there's the feast of Passover, Rosh Hashanah. Which again, it's Yom Teruah. Remember the Lord. Remember his instruction. Remember what he did over and over and over again. So for the Jewish people, they have some amazing repetitive rituals daily, weekly, annually. And they practice them. And one of the things that God is saying, these are designed to remember. Now, I, I don't see this in Christian churches at all. Especially Protestant churches. Now, I grew up as a Catholic on the south side of Chicago. I was an altar boy four years. So when I was in Catholic grade school, all the way up through eighth grade, I was an altar boy. And that was going to be basically in the 1960s. And wow, I remember those amazing rituals and ceremonies with glorious pomp and circumstance at our church there on the south side of Chicago. I remember Pentecost Sunday. 
This was a big deal, especially one Pentecost Sunday. The Archbishop Bishop of Chicago was coming to our church on the south side. This is huge. The Archbishop, I mean, with all the Catholic churches in Chicago, and all of a sudden, that's that Pentecost Sunday, our Archbishop was coming to ours. He'd lead the Pentecost service. So we, as altar boys, we practice for a month. We needed to know our role. We needed to know our specific jobs. and ta- We needed to know the prayers in Latin, of course, in detail, memorized. We had to practice the processional. And then the day arrived. Man, you couldn't find parking for blocks around our church. It was a big deal. And the service was awesome and powerful. The music on the on the amazing organ that they had in our church, on a, a full choir. And then there was the grand procession of the archbishop and the priests, key leaders in our church, and all, probably 40, 50, 60 of us altar boys. Candles and it just oh, amazing stuff. And everyone, everybody that came was dressed in suits and ties and gorgeous dresses. And obviously the priests, the archbishop, are in beautiful robes. And he had his bishop hat on, his bishop mitre. Now me, I've been, since then, since I've left the Catholic Church, I've been in Protestant churches or, or Messianic congregations. And I've heard a number of people say, Oh, there's no need to dress up on the Sabbath. There's no need to dress up on Saturday or Sunday. God only is worried about the inside. He's not worried about the outside. Really? Did God change? Did God kind of say, well, I did one thing, but it's all different now. I'm going to Dennis Prager's book, The Rational Bible on the Book of Exodus. He discusses this. We haven't got there yet. This is in really Exodus 28 when God is talking about the high priest and the institution of the high priest's role as related to the tabernacle and then the future temple. So what's very fascinating is Prager's comments on this and we're he's commenting on Exodus chapter 28 verse 2. So Prager says, we would expect God's first instruction regarding the priests and the high priest to deal with their roles and their duties. Instead, God begins it with a description of the priest's clothing. The Torah is showing this is a big deal in the mind of God. The Torah wants us to understand clothing is of immense significance. And this is still true today as it was 3,000 years ago. Now, the first thing, clothing is a distinctive sign of being human. It sets us apart from the animals. And so, human beings are set for a holier purpose. If you remember, God actually must have killed an animal, for he dressed Adam and Eve in animal skins. He wanted them clothed. 
They not were not unclothed animals. And just as Moses consecrated the priests for a holier purpose than the rest of the Israelites, and obviously Adam and Eve, human beings, us, were consecrated for a different purpose than the animals. Now, second of all, Prager brings up, second, uh, second clothing re- re- inspires respect. When worshipers entered the tabernacle and saw the priests dressed in strikingly beautiful garments, they were undoubtedly impressed in a manner befitting the solemnity of the priesthood and the service. And on top of that, the high priest is coming before God on a daily basis. Think of us. Think of us uh, invited to the White House. We probably would dress up to meet the president. The president of the United States, quite definitely. But now we're meeting God at our church services on the Sabbath? And third, closer a sign of the respect or lack of respect we have for the activities in which we're engaged in and for the people around us. It would be a sign of great disrespect to attend a wedding wearing a t-shirt and shorts. And fourth, clothing is a sign of self-respect. Studies consistently show that when a school requires its students to wear school uniforms, or even just as a dress code, grades rise and violence declines. And again, from a rabbinical point of view, their reasoning is this. So God wants the high priest dressed in distinctive, beautiful garments. (laughs) And then they would say, how much more us? If the big guy, the head man, the high priest has to dress up, look at us in our lower role. How much more for us should we dress in our best as a sign, as a sign to our Lord of our respect and our love to him? And matter of fact, in Jesus' day, when you actually read about the history, read about the culture of Jesus' day, the people would save their best clothes for Sabbath. And they still do today. Things have changed a lot in the Christian church. We just don't have that anymore. Malachi 3.6 says, God says he doesn't change. So if God demands the high priest to have special attire, Aaron, he's got to get dressed up. How much more us? That outward way of showing our respect to the Lord God. I recall attending a Sunday service, a Pentecost Sunday service in a Protestant church. It's God's commanded feast. And there was no indication in the message. There was no indication in the music. Nothing. No signs anywhere. That was Pentecost. Not a word. It was a typical Sunday. There was the normal songs, the normal announcements, and a message not even related. So it is very interesting that there's so much in Christianity and the Protestant church that is taken away from the pomp and circumstances and the glory. Now I think about the Sabbath itself and remembering 
It's a weekly memorial of Yahweh as his creator and also for the deliverance out of Exodus. But when I think about me growing up and Sunday, the Sabbath, it was just church. It was just one hour. It was the time to be religious once per week. Once the hour's up, that's it. Sabbath is over. Let's go out and play golf. Let's go play baseball. Let's go hang out. Oh, let's go shopping. We don't get it. The Sabbath is about time. It's not about a church service. God made 24 hours of a particular day per week holy, separate. We're going to deal with a lot more with that as we continue on, obviously, in the Torah. It's a day. It's a 24-hour day period. God made it special. He set it apart. It's not all about a service or ritual. We, we've missed so much the point. Now, some of us might argue and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Christmas? We remember the coming of the Savior. Look how special that is. And I, I have to agree. We've developed, we have developed awesome rituals and traditions that are man-made, not God-ordered. To remember the coming of Jesus. They're fantastic. I remember that in the Catholic Church. Oh my gosh. Recall the fantastic services we used to have in the Catholic Church on Christmas Eve. Wow. And I, I've attended Christmas Eve services in Protestant churches. No pomp, no circumstance. About the only glorious thing is everybody holds candles up. But there's some very interesting connections of the birth of Messiah to the Torah. Interesting connections of the birth of Messiah to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot, which is basically the September time frame. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. So now, if this is the case... I think God is saying Christians need to learn their word. They need to understand where they've come. Remember where you've come and came from. Where did we come from? What are the connections? Return so that you can see the birth of Messiah is related to the Hebrew scriptures. And once you do, you think Christmas is a big deal now. It'll even become bigger, a bigger zikron. As we reconnect and put the birth of Yeshua back into its historical context, back into the Torah. So history, remembering history, remembering where we came from is so critically important. Winston Churchill wrote, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Oh, we've all heard this. But it's as if God first taught it. <laughs> I mean, it's all over the Torah, written 3,400 years ago. Yes, the Christian Jewish history is so amazingly important. We need to know our beginning. We need to know our connections to the past. We need to know our roots. 
Just an example. Abraham. Studying Abraham. Paul says in his letters that Abraham was the first one to receive the gospel. On top of that, Paul also teaches us that if we are true Christians, we're sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham. Now we need to understand Abraham. So as we begin to study his word in its historical context, and I'm talking about historical context, I'm talking about archaeology, geography, history, the customs and culture of the ancient Middle East, and even the languages of the ancient Middle East, and I'm not just talking about Jewish roots. That's too limited. The Messianic congregations I've been, bless the leaders and that type of stuff, it was great, but boy, they completely dismissed the historical context. It's like one of the men who has influenced my life tremendously. I consider him one of the key teachers in my life, Ray Vanderland. We need to understand the who, what, where, and when so we can understand the why. So, the Bible was written to them then. 3,400 years ago, the Torah was written to a bunch of Hebrews coming out of Egypt. Then, what did they hear? What did they see? What did they understand? What was Yahweh's original purpose? What was the Lord's original purpose? The only way we can do that is try to put these words back into a historical context. And thus, as we reconnect, our understanding will be expanded, enriched, and enhanced. Remember what the Lord said. In Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this, and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. In other words, what's God saying? Remember history. Remember what's gone before. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not been done saying that my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God is a God of history. And as we put the Bible in its historical context, the veracity of God's word, the truthfulness, the reliability, <laughs> explodes. Remember. So, as we're reading in Exodus, we talked about unleavened bread. And the Hebrew word is matzah. Now, for the Hebrews... We recall that in this study of Exodus, way back when in the beginning, we proved that the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And when we deal with archaeology, it is quite likely that the leavening of bread was actually invented by the Egyptians. This is from an archaeological perspective. This is not my opinion. And on top of that, the gods were associated with wheat and bread and agriculture. So the Hebrews would have understood this. 
They come to Egypt and all of a sudden they're eating leavened bread for the first time and now they're seeing the gods of Egypt associated with bread and wheat. Isis, she's the wife and sister of the great god Osiris and Isis as the great lady goddess of Egypt. Sometimes she is called the lady of bread and beer. <laughs> the Egyptians invented beer. They were big beer drinkers. Isis was also known by, as of the lady of green crops. It is said that she gives the bread for eternal life. Her brother and husband, Osiris, there's a statement that he made that we have in hieroglyphics, or probably on a parchment, I can't remember where. But the statement is, I am Osiris, and as I live and grow as grain, which is wheat, barley, or corn, whom the gods bring forth to cover the earth. Osiris, as I live and grow as grain. The grain, the wheat, is a picture of Osiris. Matter of fact, it says that he dies every year and resurrects every year. And that when he resurrects, and, in he, and he's in his sarcophagus, in his casket, if you would, and you're looking at his mummy coming back to life again, you see wheat growing out of his body. <laughs> you guys, this idea of unleavened bread to a Hebrew 3,400 years ago, it's all about Egypt. God wants his people to turn away from Egypt. God wants them to turn away, turn back to him. So Yahweh creates the Passover meal. No unleavened bread. No dependence on Egypt anymore. So now is the time to begin to take the leaven, take Egypt, the false religion, out of the Hebrews. Prager, Dennis Prager, in his Torah commentary again, the Rational Bible Exodus, he talks about leavening, and he adds to it. And I, I find this fascinating. We're going to be dealing with this, especially in Genesis, but as we continue in Exodus as well. So reading from the Rational Bible Exodus from Dennis Prager, he talks about this leavening is a process believed to have been invented in Egypt about 500 years before the Exodus. It involves the fermentation of dough. Fermentation is a form of decomposition and therefore represents decay and death. Now, Torah, Dennis Prager goes on to say he really says that the Torah is really focused in on separating life from death and death from life. His comments are, the Torah regards that which represents death as temeh a word that's usually translated as unclean or impure. Something that is clean is called tahor. So he said, maybe this should be translated as death-related. So he goes on to say, thus the avoidance of leaven on Passover may be seen as a symbolic rejection of the Egyptian preoccupation with death. Much Torah law and teaching is a rejection of the values of Egypt, most particularly on the emphasis on death and the worship of nature. <laughs>
Now, in Exodus 13, we're not there yet. We're going to see some amazing connections to Jesus, to his Passover meal, to what the church calls Holy Communion, and how it all connects to unleavened bread. We're not there yet. There is a verse that's going, I mean, it's right there, and it's going to explode. When we make this connection, we're going to see that Jesus created an awesome zikron, memorial. He created it. Remember what he said, do this in remembrance of me. We just wait. So thus, I suggest that the church should be using unleavened bread, matzah, for communion. Now we'll get that point when we get to Exodus 13. Now in verse 15 and verse 19, it talks about if anyone eats anything leavened during this seven-day period, that person will be cut off from Israel. So it's not only on the first Passover. Verse 14 implies that when you're doing this as a memorial, that verse 15 and 19 about being cut off also applies to them. This is forever. Now the Hebrew word for cut off is karat. And the Strong's number is 3772. It's a, it's a very difficult concept to understand. Very difficult to get our arms around it completely. And again, going to the Rational Bible of Dennis Prager on the book of Exodus, he talks about Karat, and he gives a great um, review of the rabbinical teachings in the Talmud. Now remember, the Talmud is commentary on the Torah completed about 500 A.D., First started with the Mishnah, then the rabbi started debating the various laws and so on, how to practice them, and then the final result with all the commentary is the Talmud. So Prager is going into the Talmud and basically give us an idea of karat. So he talks about the Hebrew word for cut off is karat. It's one of the most severe punishments in the Torah. And the Torah never makes, makes fully clear what it means. And there are three ways in which the Talmud, in other words, the rabbis, explain the term. So, again, these are rabbinic views, they're opinions. Key here is Torah is silent on the topic. What is it? So, rabbis say, first, karat may refer to premature death. However, this understanding is problematic. For one thing, it could lead people to think, or at least suspect, that premature death of a Jew was punishment for some grave sin. Now, when you go to John chapter 9, verse 2, it talks about the disciples talking about a blind man, and they say, who sinned that this guy's blind? This implies karat. That's what's going on in the culture. Now, the, the New Testament doesn't say that, but they would have understood it then. That's why we need to put the Bible in its historical context. What are they talking about? They're saying this guy must have done something according to one of the laws that results in karat. And they said him and his parents, and Jesus says neither. This man is blind so that God's will might be displayed. A second aspect of karat for the rabbis as Dennis Prager teaches us, may refer to the eventual ending 
<clears throat> of the sinner's family line. This explanation has similar problems to the first. It can lead people to erroneously suspect a Jew whose family line ended, such as countless Jews in the Holocaust, as being punished by God. While many Jews who deserved karat, nevertheless, had many progeny, many descendants. A third rabbinical concept is the Talmudic explanation for karat means punishment is being cut off from life in the world to come. In other words, if they're cut off from the world to come, they're not going to heaven. That's a Christian way of understanding it. And, and just to show you how, from a Jewish perspective, this important is, I'm going in the Chumash, which is an Orthodox Jewish rabbinical commentary, and talking about the verse cut off. Reading in here, in the Kumash, and I'm reading on Exodus chapter 12 on our various verse, verse 15, quoting, This is the punishment of Karat. Generally, this punishment means that the soul of the sinner is cut off from life in the world to come. In other words, like I said, he's not going to heaven from a Christian point of view. <clears throat> but he will also be cut off from the resuscitation of the dead. Resuscitation? That's the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection. Now, I disagree with the rabbinic view, but I just wanted to let you know, they're saying this is a big deal. This is huge. And by the way, there's no forgiveness for breaking these laws that result in karat in the Torah. These are intentional sins. And sometimes they, they can be unintentional, unintentional sins as well. And so this is a big deal for what? Eating a piece of bread? What's going on here? You eat a piece of bread that's leavened, and all of a sudden you're not going to rise from the dead? You're not going to heaven? Now again, I thank Dennis Prager for his rational way of helping us understand Karat. Again, he's a deeply religious Jew. He is not Orthodox. And like I said, with regards to what we just read from his Torah commentary on Exodus, he disagrees with the rab rabbinic views on Karat. He's a Hebrew scholar and a man who strives to make sense of the Torah. Now, his comments, thank you, Dennis, he seems to say that this seems to be related to things that are happening between a man or woman and God. It's got nothing to do with an action against another person. And so these things are administered by God. In other words, one is eating, one eats unleavened bread, even by mistake. And let's say there's no witnesses. You're still going to be cut off because the Torah does not say if somebody witnesses it, then you're cut off. It just says you eat it, even by mistake. But who's going to cut you off? It's, it, it's hidden. Who, who's going to do this? You can't escape this. 
Let's go to Numbers 19 and verse 13. This is another example of Karat. Numbers 19, verse 13. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Touch a dead body, you are cut off from Israel. So in Jesus' day, servants from the temple went out throughout the countryside, north, south, east, and west, on all the roadways, and they painted caves or holes or specific areas white where they knew people were buried and dead bodies existed. Why? A Jew coming to Passover didn't want to even come near, accidentally even, to be near a place that was unclean because of a dead body. But who's going to cut you off? So again, it's something God does to us. It's terribly serious. It's almost as if God is saying this. This is, a, He said, these things that we do that result in karat, like eat unleavened bread, or even go to work on the Sabbath. Exodus 31, 14. You will be cut off. These are serious to him. To us, they may seem trivial. But to him, there is a sign of our wanting to be his people. Simple things to show our love and our commitment to him. To do what Abba says, our Father. So whatever. <laughs> it's really best to avoid anything that brings on karat. Take a look at Hebrews 10, verse 31. <laughs> it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now commentators talk about the fact that it's more of a negative than a positive. In other words, if you've done anything that results in karat, or if you've done anything that's an intentional sin, watch out, because you are in the hands of the living God. Now, all Egypt and Pharaoh are about to experience that. You guys, we're just dealing with this interlude. Remember what's going to happen. The 10th plague is about to happen. We're just dealing with these verses right now, because this is this amazing interlude. Or 2 Kings 19, verse 35. 2 Kings 19.35 185,000 men of Sennacherib's army, the Assyrians, were killed in one night. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And thus we come to Exodus 12. starting in verse 22, and we'll read to verse 23. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, that's going to be the blood of the Passover lamb, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, the wooden structure of the actual doorway, 
and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So here's the lamb of Passover. The blood is captured in a pan. It's now painted on the wood. The blood of the lamb of Passover is put on a piece of wood. The doorpost and the lintel of the doorway. So that the Lord, Yahweh, declares... The Lord, will, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come to your houses. Now the Hebrew words there for pass over are al-pasach. Pasach means to hop, to skip, to leap. So al-pasach means to hop over, to skip over. So it's not one word, it's two words there in the Hebrew. So the Hebrews who decide by their own free will to obey Yahweh, they will escape. They will escape the wrath of God that's coming upon Egypt. They're protected. They're sheltered. That Hebrew word is Pesach. Different from Pasach. Pesach means to escape, shelter, being protected. And definitely, the Hebrews are protected because they escape God's wrath. <laughs> we can't help but remember Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He was crucified. He hung on the wood, wood, for six hours, and certainly his blood flowed on the wood, the wood of the cross. Wood. Passover. This reminds us of the door and the wooden pieces of the door, the doorpost and the lintel. And the Father, the Lord, Yahweh, sees the blood of the Lamb of God. He does not see the blood of the Passover Lamb. He sees the blood of the Lamb of God. His Lamb. And you say, wait a minute, 1 Corinthians 5.7 says that Jesus is the Passover lamb in some versions. Well, if you actually take a look at the Greek, the Greek means Jesus is the Passover. You take the Greek word, take it back to the Torah, and we come to the word Pesach, not Pasach, not to skip or hop over. Jesus is the protection. He's the shelter. It's through him we escape the wrath of God. This is huge. And thus, when we freely choose Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, freely choose to trust in the event of his crucifixion, that, that his blood cleanses us from our sin, and that Jesus is the Pesach, the protection, the shelter, And Paul teaches in Romans 5, 9 that we're justified. Justified by his blood. In other words, we're found not guilty. 
It says that in Romans 5, 9, by his blood we are found not guilty and we're saved from God's wrath. It's the same story, but it's a different lamb. It cannot be the Passover lamb of the Exodus. This has got to be the lamb of God. You need to study the Passover lamb in the Torah. The Passover lamb never provides Pesach. The Passover lamb supplies blood. God is the one who provides Pesach. God provides Pesach. Protection, shelter, escape. And Jesus is our Passover. And again, like I said, from the English to the Greek and back into the Hebrew. The Greek word for Pasach, Pesach, Passover, is related to the Hebrew word Pesach, which means protection, shelter. We started this lesson out by talking about Azikron. And for Robin and I, we annually do what we call the Passover meal of the Messiah. And it's definitely based on the Jewish Seder. I really believe that the Last Supper was a meal that had all the characteristics of what you would call as a Passover meal representing the Exodus. I think that's what Jesus did. Now we do it on the day before the Jewish people do their Passover Seder, just like Jesus. And on our table we have a symbol. It's a little wooden symbol. It's a cross, a wooden cross. But glued to that cross is a doorway. In other words, we've got the left doorpost and the right doorpost, and those doorposts are connected or glued to a lintel. It looks like an ancient doorpost, and that's glued to the cross. We have both symbols there. It's zakhar. It's a pin to prick us, to bring to mind, to remember two lambs, the Passover lamb of God and the lamb of God. It's a remembrance. What Jesus said in John 4, verse 22, salvation comes through the Jews. Yes! The word salvation in Hebrew, the Strong's number is 3444, is Yeshua. It's Jesus' name. So check this out. Isaiah 12, verse 2. It says in English, especially in the New American Standard, God is my salvation. But if you take a look at the Hebrew, God is my Yeshua. So for us, with this symbol that we have on the table, we've got the wooden doorposts glued on the wooden cross. It says to me, you can't have one without the other. You cannot have the Passover of the Messiah separated from the Passover Israel. If you're interested, also... In actually doing a Passover meal of the Messiah like us, email us. We'll be glad to help you do it. Email us lom.ministries at gmail.com. L-O-M, like, like letter menorah, the period, and then the word ministries at gmail. So you too will then be able to apply the last four verses of our podcast. Exodus 12, 24 through 28. 
And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. Notice, for your children. This is a family event, not a church event. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So, have guests come over. Make sure your kids are there, or your grandkids, or your great-grandkids. Let them ask, why are we doing this? And if they don't ask, tell them. You can now preach the gospel on this. This is such an amazing zikron to do the Passover meal of the Messiah the day before the Jewish people do their Passover Seder. Remember, you can't have one without the other. You can preach the gospel. And you can use the symbol of the cross and the doorway that is glued to it. Now, Easter, that's not commanded by God. It's a holiday that man made up. And, and again, I go back to the Catholic Church and I just think about the pomp and circumstance and how wonderful that event was. But Passover is the Lord's. And as we read, God is our salvation. In Isaiah 12. But in Hebrew, that means God is our Yeshua. You'll remember that one of the purposes of this Torah series, both in Genesis and Exodus, and then later on in the other books, one of the purposes, one of the goals is to ask, where is Jesus in the Torah? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's right in front of us. And we just have to open our eyes. He's right there, never forget it. Always, 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 as God teaches us, remember, remember, remember. Shalom. Shalom.